RipperCast presents 10 Weeks in Whitechapel, an audio series based on the blog 10 Weeks in Whitechapel, written and narrated by Carl Kopak, and featuring the voices of Catherine Amin, Paul Begg, Neil R.A. Bell, Andrew Firth, Michael Hawley, Philip Hutchison, Steve McDermott, John Reese, Ali Ryder, Adam Stevens, Callum Williams, Gareth Williams, Ian Wilson, and Keeley Wilson. Week 5 Dear Boss, The Alleged Letters and Writings of the Ripper. One of the most interesting factors of the Whitechapel murders is their ability to remain in the public eye some 130 years after the events. Take this year alone. There are currently two Ripper stories in the press. One concerns the idea of exhuming Mary Kelly's body, while the other features the American crime novelist Patricia Cornwell and her book which accuses the artist Walter Sickett of being the Ripper. After all this time, Jack still makes good copy. This is surprising, as though the Autumn of Terror is probably the most well-known series of murders in British history, there's very little about them which makes them singular. They are not unusual in their number, as there have been plenty of serial killers with more than five, or six depending on your point of view, murders on their hand, nor are their brutality particularly rare. It also can't be the fact that the murderer escaped the clutches of the law. After all, no one knows the identity of the Zodiac killer, and he's presumed to have killed more than 30 times in California throughout the 1960s and 70s. In fact, I've just googled unsolved serial killers, as you do, and Jack fails even to appear on most lists. So why is this case so famous? What is it about Jack that's led to a suspect list of over 150 men? Of nightly murder tours, I counted six alone last week, and numerous films and books. As I stated in the introduction, my own interest stems from the fascination of Victoriana, along with the geography, topography, and social conditions of the time. But for others, it's the challenge in solving Scotland Yard's greatest ever mystery. Maybe we're still captivated by something which happened on the 27th of September, 1888. The arrival of a letter at the Central News Agency in the City of London. It read, Dear Boss, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they look so clever and talk about being on the right track. That joke about leather apron gave me real fits. I am down on whores and I shan't quit ripping them till I do get buckled. Grand work the last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work and want to start again. You will soon hear of me with my funny little games. I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle over the last job to write with, but it went thick like glue and I can't use it. Red ink is fit enough, I hope. (laughs) The next job I do, I shall clip the lady's ears off and send to the police officers just for jolly, wouldn't you? Keep this letter back till I do a bit more work, then give it out straight. My knife's so nice and sharp, I want to get to work right away if I get a chance. Good luck. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Don't mind me giving the trade name. P.S. 
Wasn't good enough to post this before I got all the red ink off my hands. Curse it. No luck yet. They say I'm a doctor now. <laughs> and there it is. Written in red ink, purporting to be from the murderer himself, Jack the Ripper. The loudest noise comes from when the silent speak. For weeks, Whitechapel was looking over its shoulder and eyeing anyone with suspicion. Where would the next body pop up? Who would be next? The tension grew and grew, but the silence was deafening. Then suddenly, he spoke. The tone is one of mockery. He's enjoying the police's mishandling of the case, and revels in the knowledge that his prey walk about at night, supplying him with easy pickings. Suddenly, the murderer wasn't just a man who killed prostitutes at night. He was a man who enjoyed his work, and was the enemy of all. Known commonly as the Dear Boss Letter, it was forwarded to Scotland Yard on the 29th of September, the day before the double event. Evidently, the police thought it genuine, as they posted hundreds of copies around the area, and asked for anyone who recognised the handwriting to come forward. The letter itself was almost certainly a hoax. Are we meant to believe that a man with such an educated hand was the sort who lived in the slums of the East End? Hardly. Years later, a senior police official claimed that he had a pretty shrewd idea as to the identity of the author, and hinted at an enterprising young journalist. There were even reports of a confession from one of them, though that was yet to be proved. There were, however, two significant outcomes. Firstly, there was the signature. This was the first time the name Jack the Ripper had been used, and it sent shockwaves throughout the whole of London. Finally, there was a name for the unnamed assassin. Far better than Leather Apron or The Fiend of Whitechapel, Jack the Ripper gave the murderer both an everyday name while adding his gruesome pastime. Furthermore, it became the template name for future atrocities. The Camden Ripper, the Yorkshire Ripper, and even Jack the Stripper, which was a catch-all term for eight gruesome murders of sex workers in West London between 1959 and 65. More importantly was the choice of recipient. The Central News Agency was a syndication press company, similar to the Press Association and Reuters today, though much more sensationalist. The Times often took it to task for embellishing stories rather than simply passing them on. Thomas Bulling, a man strongly suspected of writing the Dear Boss letter to keep the business going, as it were, was an employee there, and was exactly the sort of man capable of playing a trick on the public. So although the Ripper murders were relatively low in number and intrigue when compared to other cases, both before and after, this became the first set of murders to be utilised by a grateful media to dramatise the atrocities. In 1888, if you weren't scared, the press weren't doing their job. Much like today in some ways. The media went berserk. If your newspaper was anti-establishment in outlook, you used the taunting tone of the letter to attack the police and government. If your agenda was one of social reform, you now had a name for the scourge of the area, and if you simply just wanted to scare the living daylights out of the public, here was a welcome helpmeet with a catchy name. Just for Jolly. The author clearly knew his audience. Any letter to Scotland Yard, and there were plenty of them following the Nichols and Chapman murders, would run the risk of being ignored, or silently kept back and investigated further, rather than giving it the massive exposure it begged for. It produced a desire effect, so the author didn't stop there, and issued a second missive. The day after the double event, the same office received a postcard. I was not cutting, dear old boss, when I gave you the tip. You'll hear about Saucy Jackie's work tomorrow. Double event this time. Number one squealed a bit, couldn't finish straight off. 
had not the time to get ears for police. Thanks for keeping last letter back till I got to work again. Jack the Ripper. Here, the author seems to know about both the 30th of September murders and the fact that Edo's earlobe was snipped off. Did this indicate that he had prior knowledge of the killings before they reached the press? Was he there? Alas, not. The postmark reached the 1st of October, which means he had ample time to read up on the facts and reproduce them accordingly. What he probably didn't realise was that it was actually all too easy for the murderer to remove Edo's ears in Mitre Square and take them away, but for reasons best known to himself, he chose the far more difficult operation of cutting out a kidney in pitch darkness. His priority, then, was not in challenging the police, but getting the organs. In addition to this, the medics said that the missing earlobe looked more like an accidental nick than a deliberate attempt. The correspondent was not the murderer. Still, the same man had come up with the term Jack the Ripper and double event, so he definitely had the talent for naming things. On the 10th of October, Sir Charles Warren gave his views in a missive to the Home Office. At present, I think the whole thing a hoax. But of course we are bound to try and ascertain the writer in any case. The letter, like much Ripper evidence, disappeared, but was found again and anonymously sent back to Scotland Yard in 1988. No such luck with the saucy Jackie postcard, however. It's been missing for years. While it is likely that the letters are hoaxes, though not everyone thinks that way, there is more debate about a letter and enclosure which arrived at the home of George Lusk, the head of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee on the 16th of October, 1888, two weeks after the double event. A Miss Emily Marsh claimed that a day earlier, a man had entered her father's leather shop on Jubilee Street, Stepney, not far from the London Hospital. He spoke with an Irish accent, and remarked on a Whitechapel Vigilance Committee poster, which advertised a reward. He asked her if she had Lusk's address. She did, though she left out the house number. The man made a note of it and left. A letter duly arrived at Lusk's house, and features a famous address. From Hell Sir, I send you half the kidney I took from one woman, and preserved it for you. The other piece, I fried and ate it. It was very nice. I may send you the bloody knife that took it out, if you only wait a while longer. Signed, catch me when you can. Mr. Lusk. The package did not contain a house number either. Enclosed with the letter was a small box containing a kidney. At first, Lusk took it to be a practical joke and believed it to be a gruesome artifact from a long dead animal. But following consultation with his friends, agreed to have it examined. They took it to Dr. Thomas Horrocks Oppenshaw in the London Hospital, whose findings were remarkable. It was part of a human kidney. What's more, it had been a left kidney. Catherine Eddowes had had hers removed in Allgate just over a fortnight earlier. Lusk also announced that he'd received a postcard written in the same hand. Say, boss, you seem rare frightened. Guess I'd like to give you fits, but can't stop time enough to let you box of toys play copper games with me. But hope to see you when I don't hurry too much. Goodbye, boss. Lusk subsequently took the letters to Lehman Street Police Station and explained the situation. The kidney was examined further by Dr Gordon Brown. There is a myth about Oppenshaw's examination of the kidney. It's said that he claimed it to be a genie kidney, i.e. that it was from a drinker, and from one who was suffering from Bright's disease, as Eddowes had, and that it was from a 45-year-old woman. 
also that it had been removed in the last three weeks. This comes from the Press Association, and although they were far more reliable than the Central News Agency, they too seem to have leaned towards the sensationalist, as Oppenshaw actually said no such thing. He only gave the view that the item was human in nature, and left-sided. This did little to deter the writer of the letter from doubling his number of correspondents, and on the 29th of October, Dr. Oppenshaw himself received the letter. Old boss, he was right. It was the left kidney. I was going to operate again close to your hospital. Just as I was going to draw me knife along of her blooming throat, them cusses of copper spoilt the game. But I guess I will be on the job soon and will send you another bit of innards. Jack the Ripper. Oh, have you seen the devil with his microscope and scalpel a-looking at a kidney with a slide cocked up? While the other letters have been written by a literate man, pretending to be illiterate, this letter goes way over the top. It should be noted that the text includes the word hospital, O-S-P-I-T-L-E, for hospital, whereas it was spelled correctly on the envelope. Someone is trying just a little too hard. The most interesting aspect of the original Lusk letter, magnificent address aside, from hell, is the signature. At this point, Scotland Yard had close to a thousand hoax letters, many of which contained the Jack the Ripper signature. This one, however, did not. Since the Ripper murders, taunting letters from killers to the police and media have become almost common, though not all have chosen to adopt their given nickname. Ted Kaczynski, the anarcho-primitivist, who killed three people and made many more, was known as Unabomber by the media. But the lengthy manifesto he sent to the police was not signed that way. Any reference to himself came as WE, or FC, by which he meant Freedom Club. Equally, Peter Sutcliffe never used the term Yorkshire Ripper, and chose the chilling soubriquet, the Street Cleaner. Maybe it's the repudiation of the media name which gives the Lusk letter writer the stronger case to actually be from the murderer. Although Scotland Yard received 1,094 communications from the public, or the murderer, it is only one, the Goulton Street Graffito, which rivals the above letters. As stated earlier, the graffito was found above Catherine Eddowes' discarded apron, left there by the killer sometime after 2.20am on the 30th of September 1888. PC Alfred Long had found the words written above the door jam. The Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. The words were wiped off on the instructions of Sir Charles Warren, who could not even countenance a photograph of it being taken in case the knowledge of it sparked race riots in an already tense area. Even if it was the murderer who chalked those words on the wall of 108 to 119 Wentworth dwellings, its meaning is still shrouded in mystery. The double negative doesn't make it any easier, as it appears that it's either a celebration of Jewish stoicism in the face of overwhelming criticism and persecution, or a snide dig at immigrants who went about killing the local women, but refused to be blamed. In any case, Warren wasn't prepared to take the risk. Were the words the work of the Ripper? It's almost impossible to say, but I have my doubts. Let's look at the activities that night, and see how likely it is. 12.45. He throws Elizabeth Stride to the ground in full view of Israel Schwartz and Pipe Man on Burner Street. At 1am he kills Stride in Duckfield's yard. There's only one point of escape, and that's the gate to the front yard. A minute later, Louis Deemschutz enters the yard, and disturbs him before he can perform the mutilations. He was very possibly in the yard itself when the coachman climbed off his cart. He leaves once Deemschutz has gone inside. It's a close call. He must kill again, and heads for St. Bottle's Church, Allgate. 1.05am. 
The alarm is raised in Burner Street, and the police of Lehman Street, the direction in which the murder is headed, stream onto the streets. Mitre Square is a 12-minute walk from Burner Street, so he could have been talking to Eddowes by 1.20am. 1.35am. He talks to Eddowes in front of Church Passage, which leads to Mitre Square. He's witnessed by three men, Joseph Lavender, Harry Harris and Joseph Levy. Between 1.35 and 1.44am, he kills Eddowes in the southwest corner of Mitre Square. He removes her kidney and uterus in pitch darkness. He also performs facial mutilations upon her. He then leaves Mitre Square. PC James Harvey was possibly yards away in the next road, but Mitre Square was not on his beat. The murderer may well have heard him as he passed. 1.45am. PC Watkins discovers the body and looks to night watchman George Morris for assistance. The alarm is raised. By 2am, the City of London Police join the Metropolitan Police on the streets of Aldgate and Whitechapel to stop possible suspects and search premises. 2.20am. P.C. Long walks along Gilson Street. He cannot speak of the graffito, but is certain that the apron wasn't there earlier. 2.55am. Long returns to find both the graffito and the apron. Now, do we really think he's going to have a night like that? Be carrying knives, a kidney and a uterus, drop the most damning piece of evidence in the entire case, and then take time out to leave a cryptic message in chalk in a predominantly Jewish area? I just don't think so. It's not to be credited. If he hasn't written the letters, why start now after four murders? He already has what he's come for. The Ripperologist and historian Martin Fido has a much more plausible explanation. Goulson Street was, and still is, a market area, acting as an overspill area from Petticoat Lane and Wentworth Street. It was not unusual for hawkers and traders to write their prices up on the wall in chalk. As arguments were common, Fido believes that the graffito was simply the daubing of a disgruntled customer, who felt he'd been ripped off in some way and wanted to vent spleen and had nothing at all to do with the murders. Others say that the placing of the apron is deliberate and practically points to the message. Both arguments are valid. Personally, I want to know what the Ripper did between escaping Mitre Square at 1.45 and dropping the apron in Goulson Street before 2.55am. You can walk between the two points in roughly five to seven minutes. Did he go back to his bolt hole to drop off his sinister captures? If so, why would he still have his knife with him? He'd use the apron to clean it. If the streets were teeming with police, just where did he go? In any case, the letters continued and became more and more bizarre. October came and went, and then for the first time since August, the Ripper appeared to have some time off. Maybe the streets were just a little too hot to handle for him now, and any possible discovery of him might lead to a lynching as much as prosecution. For five weeks, he kept his powder dry. Then, on the morning of the 9th of November, 1888, in Miller's Court of Dorset Street, he returned with his most gruesome murder of all. <laughs> 